As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Joining us around the table here in the studio, Stuart Kaiser, the head of U.S. equity trading strategy over at City. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. How long can Goldilocks last? HSB's question, not mine. HSBC, just asking that question seconds ago. They say continued disinflation and stronger than expected growth in many DMs argues for a continued risk on stance. Does it? I, I think in general it does. I mean, you know, big picture, if the labor market in the U.S. remains strong and core CPI continues to ease, I think that's a good backdrop, you know, for risk assets. I think the issue we're having now is, frankly, expectations. You know, if you look at what's happened over the last month, you had a reasonably solid earnings season, but the average stock that beat EPS was unchanged on the day. You had, you know, a, a solid payrolls report. The market traded off. You had an easy inflation print, and the market was flat. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good news out there, but the market, I think, has become a little callous to it, which is kind of not good for risk. Reward in our view. Michael Hartnett talked about this, Lisa, over at BFA and the fund manager survey. Their line was basically bear positioning was strong tailwind for risk assets in the first half. Not the case in the second half. Their fund manager survey, you mentioned it yesterday, least bearish since February of last year. Yeah, cash allocations coming down. And we heard that to start the show, basically. Take the cash, and you might as well put it into risk because why not? You might as well get the upside surprise if the economy is strong. You put it into tech at the start of the year. You did, Stuart. Many other people didn't. There was that pool of negativity to feed on to drive tech higher after a brutal year in 2022. Are you sticking with that trade? You know, it's a tough call right here. I think, yes, as a base case, we still like tech and growth. We still think that can work because we do ultimately expect the, you know, the labor market data to begin to weaken. And I think in that environment, that's, that's kind of where you want to sit. Obviously, the last month has been pretty tough for that trade, uh, particularly because yields have risen, you know, pretty sharply. And, and that's impacted tech, I think, more than other sectors. And also this expectation story. If, if you're worried about high expectations, you know, that's clearly very acute in the tech space. So I think you, you are fighting expectations. You're fighting performance. And right now you're fighting higher yields. Yields. But if you do think economy can weaken and that should hopefully put a cap on yields, then I think tech is, is a place that you want to be in that case. But but certainly the, the past month has been a been a tough ride for us. Can we just talk about quickly, just pause, cash on the sidelines? This is sort of the misnomer that everyone keeps talking about. Oh, there's so much cash on the sidelines, all these people who aren't invested. Cash is great for some people if they're earning 5%. So at what point can we say the cash on the sidelines has been used up? I think it's a great question. I mean, if you look at retail money market balances, those are up $600 billion since April of last year. $600 billion is a big number, <laughs> right? You know, but to your point, you're, you're clipping a 5% coupon on that. And clearly, not all of that 600 will go into cash. A lot of that's probably come out of traditional bank accounts and got into money market funds to get that yield. So I think the question is, to release that money, what has to happen, right? Either you need to get yields lower 
so that 5% isn't, isn't as attractive, or you need to have equities continue to perform the way they are, and you get sort of a FOMO you know, situation on the equity side. It does feel like equities are topping out a little bit, so I think, I think it's going to be hard to dislodge that money. To the sentiment point, at what point do losses become self-fulfilling? At what point do losses spur a question to this whole Goldilocks, to John's point, and FOMO feel that we were hearing about for the past couple of months? Look, I mean, if, if equity start to, to move a little bit lower, yeah, that's going to dent sentiment. I, mean, I don't think there's any way around that. You know, tech has performed poorly, but frankly, the S&P isn't that far off <laughs> off its high. So, you know, it, it's interesting. Last year, in a high volatility environment, the moves we've seen recently would have not, you know, not really registered, right? But July was the lowest realized volatility months that we've seen since December of 2019. So you get into August, you get a little, of a little bit of a blip, and it feels, I think, a little more painful. But yeah, I think you know one of the things we were a little bit worried about is you know a lot of folks were very defensive in hedging earlier in the year. That hedging did not work out. It cost a lot of money in terms of premium paid. The market's probably less well hedged today, you know, than it was probably three months ago. So to your point there, if we do get some losses, the market is going to be a little more surprised by it or probably a little more disrupted by it than it might have been earlier this year. Let's finish on where the negativity is now. It's in China. Everybody that comes on this show is so downbeat on what's happening in the country at the moment. The data's bad. The data you can see, you're not going to see much more of it on the youth unemployment side. I've got no idea when that changes. The data this week basically led to a policy response by the Chinese central bank to cut rates by the most, I think, since 2020. This is typically the time to lean in, to lean into Chinese equities when people are so downbeat on what's happening there. Is this that time? Uh, you know, we're not there yet. Uh, you know, I think I think at least me personally, you know, we're, we're pretty cautious on China. But I, like, I think there's three aspects of the China story. There's two weeks ago, everybody was celebrating China's exporting deflation. This is going to help the Fed, right? But that sort of ignored the flip side of it, which is you're losing a global growth impulse. This week, the discussion is much more about the growth side and, and to what you were discussing earlier, which is a sentiment issue. Um, and I think the sentiment issue, frankly, is what's going to keep people out a little bit. You know, foreign investors, I, I think, were, were not happy with how they were treated by China over the last couple of years. And I think it's going to make money, you know, kind of slow to re-engage in that space. So I think, to me, the sentiment is very hard to predict. The growth versus inflation trade-off, I think, really just has to do with what the market narrative is at any given point in time, right? You know, if two weeks ago it was an inflation narrative, it's good. Now it's a growth narrative, it's a little bit bad. But I think we're we're generally, you know, being fairly cautious about, about putting money into China. The flows that we've seen are much more options-based, high payout type stuff, you know, limited risk, you know, you know type flows going going into China. Um, and we've discussed this in the past. The evolution of that Chinese trade this year has been, you know, or over the last 12 months has been very, very fascinating. And right now, I think people are a little bit a little bit cautious to put money to work. There's a question about whether or not to put money to work in Chinese equities. There's another about the read-through effect in the United States for companies that are leveraged to China. And then just more broadly, I think about the fact that this wealth manager missed payments on several of its products, that you're dealing with a housing market that doesn't see an end, a light at the end of the tunnel. At what point does that have contagion that percolates outside of China? It's a good question because, you know, I think initially or stage two or three of the China trade was I'm going to own Europe and I'm going to own luxury goods that sell into the China consumer, right? So, you know, certainly those type of stocks would be under a little bit of pressure given given the, the lack of spending growth that, that we're seeing in China. So, yeah, it, it, look, it's an impact. If you look at the, the foreign inve direct investment in China, it's come off a little bit. U.S. companies are clearly not putting money, you know, directly in there uh, for luxury goods. And you'd probably throw Apple into that category and Tesla as well. You know, the, the, the domestic demand has been a headwind. So, yeah, it's, it, it is a risk. And I think that just gets into this global growth narrative of, of when does the benefit on the inflation side get outweighed by the sort of detriment on the growth side? Well said. 
I'm just looking at Target on my screen right now, slightly distracted. It's up by up by 8.5 percent. I don't get off it. the back of this. Do you want one to get those, it? One of those stories. That if you told me the earnings before they came out and then said, guess what the stock price is going to do? I'd be like, well, they've cut the outlook on profit, so that's not yeah, great. I, that's what I But we like too. the second quarter rebound for profit. I personally think this is just where, where the expectations have been set. Because if you look at those shares, they're down considerably on the year. So at a certain point, if they're not hemorrhaging money and throwing all in uh, you know, some negative news, I guess it's positive. I can't really read it any other Stuart, way. what can I learn from a move like that? <laughs> well, the thing is, you say Target. If you said Target, it would be, much, so much, fair, more, it? It would be much more understandable, the type of move. But hey, look, this is the important <laughs> part of earnings, right? It's what happens with the consumer. We then had tech early in the tourists over in China, couldn't they? Target. Part of LVMH, some mm. kind of collab. Yeah. <laughs> what were you said? Did you say they sell sinks? No, you were the one that said oh, that. I, I said asking. they 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 sell. I know the soap that goes on sinks. I can affirm that. Nice. Yeah. Okay. News you need to know. Stuart, good to see you. Stuart Kaiser, <laughs> City. Thank you. Thank you. Kinda. Right. Kinda. That's we're great. Not really. I'm gonna go buy a sink. Every, every, <laughs> every guest that comes on this show, they're like, "Thank you." Yeah, sort of. <laughs> I think. I think I'm gonna run away now. I'm like, thank you, yeah. and I'm kind of sorry. <laughs> Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's turn to Greg Peters, co-CIO of PGM Fixed Income. Greg joins us now. Greg, not to talk about what's happening with Target, TJX and Walmart, to talk about this bond market, Greg, a question that we've asked all week. And we've got a different perspective from different people. What is behind this bond market move, Greg, of the last month? Yeah, so I was listening to your repartee, uh, you know, before you came over to me. And I think I have a very different narrative than the one that you were just talking about. I think it's about growth. Um, uh, you know, the Fed um, has raised interest rates. Uh, inflation is coming under control. Are they done? I don't know. There's probably some more uh, room left to move uh, higher. But it's the underlying growth element that has driven the bond market, in my estimation, as it's about the shape of the curve, right? So if you believe that inflation is going to remain relatively high, the economy is strong and stable, then the curve has to start to normalize. And what that means is that back-end rates have to move higher as a consequence. So to me, it's all about the strength in uh, economic activity. Uh, and sure, inflation you know, remains uh, 
you know, above above trend, but it's really the growth story. But if you take a look at that implication, there's some broader market consequences to this. First of all, it means that the yield curve is normalizing up, not down to 3%. And that means that we could have higher rates for longer at a time where this economy can keep chugging along despite rates where they are. Can the credit markets sustain a 5% or 4.5% long-term base treasury yield? Does that wreck some of the uh, math behind the credit bet? Well, yes and no. So, I mean, I think the economy can handle higher interest rates. I think that has been the mistake that uh, many investors have made, myself included, the the underlying strength in the economy and the ability to handle higher rates and the benefit of higher rates that you're seeing vis-a-vis the consumer but you're quite right, Lisa. There's been so many capital structures, whether it's in commercial real estate, whether it's in uh, credit, that have been built on the backs of extremely low interest rates. So as interest rates remain at the high, higher level here, then a lot of those capital structures really can't, can't, uh, can't withstand uh, uh, that environment. So as a consequence, I think we're in this stronger growth environment but at the same time, we will see above trend uh, default and distress activity as a lot of these companies really just are unable to, uh, to uh, you know, be a going concern uh, with a higher rate environment. One thing we keep hearing, Craig, is a number of investors say they're leading into duration because you might as well lock in yields where they are. Getting 4.2% for 10 years looks pretty good relative to what you used to be able to get. Are you saying that there is more normalization to be had if we are going to create a more flat or more normalized yield curve? Yes, and that's what we've been saying. And I've been arguing that for the past you know, six months as I think it's too early to lock in duration. If you believe that the economy uh, you know, is entering a soft landing, no landing, whatever landing you want to uh, assign to it, that means rates have to move higher, not lower. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, the Fed might, might modulate uh, a little on the margin, take, take rates down, but not as much as in the price, right? And so for me, rates are higher. I don't see any rush to lock in duration at this point. We're leaning against that and have been leaning against that uh, for quite some time. So we're still short duration um, as as uh, once again, it's growth, Lisa. I assume you're taking that position, Greg, not because you think we're going 10, 20 basis points higher than where we are. It must be bigger than that. What kind of numbers are you thinking we can get to? I don't know. There's been a big move already, right? So I don't want to get greedy either. But I think on balance, the tendency will be for higher rates, not lower rates. And so, um, you know, we've been kind of talking about this range of, you know, four to four and a half. Uh, but the truth of the matter is uh, it's leaning against the forwards and what's in the price and what's in the price in the forward space, it continued rate cuts uh, uh, and a lower yield environment. So that's kind of what we're leaning against more than kind of making a call on where rates ultimately settle out. But it's the tendency for rates to be higher that I think most investors are missing as, you know, the regime that we were in pre-pandemic is gone. It's different. And I think the rate regime is different as a consequence. And I don't think investors have accepted that reality or accepted the reality that the Fed also can't easily and readily cut interest rates like they uh, did in the past. So, Greg, what I hear then is just another way of saying, don't worry about the reinvestment risk of sitting at the front end. Is that right? 
Yeah, to a degree. I, I mean, I think cash rates are really quite attractive here. I think that's inducing investors to take risk off the table, not lean into it. Uh, uh, on the credit side of the aisle, there's tremendous opportunity uh, across the global credit markets. A lot of that opportunity, though, is in safe type of allocation. So whether it's front end type of credit, whether it's structured products, these are safe bets where you earn a, a tremendous amount of carry. You don't have to dip down into triple C's, take a lot of duration or credit risk. And so take what the markets are giving you. And what the market is giving you is really quite, quite attractive here. So we're extremely bullish on the U.S. economy, uh, kind of on a long term basis. We're very bullish on fixed income as well. But you don't have to take a lot of risk in order to be successful. And I think that's the important message that I want to leave with. Message received. A clinic. Greg, thank you, sir. Greg Peters there of PGM Fixed Income. Cara Cardona has been brilliant on this point, chief U.S. economist at BNP Paribas, who has been talking about how he will expect inflation to keep coming down, which it has this year, uh, and that there can be some relief from the Fed to move away. Carl joins us now, I'm so pleased to say, a good friend of the show. Carl, what's your take on the resilience, just starting with the housing market, that we continue to see there? Well, as we look at this morning's numbers, I think uh, when housing starts tell you one story and housing permits tell you a slightly different story, uh, permits are the one you're supposed to trust because housing starts can be very volatile uh, due to weather and, and other types of factors that cause some choppiness on a month to month basis. Uh, the housing data have been in a, you know, a, a pretty sour uh, environment for the last several quarters. Um, the pace of decline is slowing, uh, but with affordability as low as it is and mortgage rates hitting new highs uh, on, a, on a daily basis almost, uh, I think these are some real constraints uh, going forward. Of course, the uh, inventory uh, shortages that you highlighted are a, a big factor supporting uh, activity, especially uh, encouraging uh, new uh, new construction. Uh, but even yesterday in the uh, Home Builder Sentiment Survey, we saw that buyer traffic, pr prospective buyer traffic is extremely low uh, and uh, home builder sentiment declining for the first time this year. So extrapolate that into retail sales. Are you saying that you're seeing similar signs that it cannot con continue to have the same kind of robust gains in consumer spending that we've seen? Well, Lisa, I see some uh, some significant uh, headwinds emerging for uh, retail sales and consumption more broadly uh, in the back half of this year. Now, as we dissected yesterday's uh, retail sales data for July and maybe Amazon Prime Day helped to uh, support the numbers and whatnot. Uh, but as we went into the details, it looked like discretionary spending was particularly strong. So the sporting goods, hobby, leisure, uh, restaurants and bars, all the things you would spend on if you have extra cash in your pocket, uh, th those categories were actually the strongest categories in the report. So things are on a solid footing uh, in, in, in the month of July at least. Uh, but as we go into the back half of the year, we know that labor activity is slowing. We know that income generation from labor activity uh, is decelerating as well. Uh, we have stu student loan payments uh, resuming in October, so there's questions whether people will immediately jump back into paying those loans or not. But uh, with an annualized price tag of about $100 billion, uh, it could have a very uh, significant consequence, uh, even if it isn't fully felt uh, in the initial months. 
you have a potential government shutdown coming in the back half of the year, uh, and also all those uh, excess savings generated during the pandemic uh, have been uh, getting uh, spent uh, at a, uh, a pretty uh, healthy clip, uh, whereas we think uh, the, uh, the kind of uh, excess savings uh, will be fully exhausted uh, by the end of the year. And as we look by income quintile, we can see really the lowest three quintiles. That's a significant share of the population. Uh, the lowest three quintiles have basically exhausted those savings already, which should mean uh, more price sensitivity among consumers, which helps on the inflation side, but also a slower pace of consumption as well. Carl, not there as of July, but I, that, that's something we're watching for in the back half. People have been saying this for a while. And then you see house after house push out their forecast for recession and say, well, maybe it's not happening as soon as we thought. Can you give us a sense of what gives someone conviction that it will eventually happen, even though month after month, everyone had expected uh, some of these consumers to run out of cash by mid-year. Now it's the end of the year. Maybe it's early next year. When does it sort of start to shift to, okay, maybe this is sustainable? Well, I think that, uh, you know, as we see new data coming in, there has been more resilience in the labor market than a lot of folks uh, anticipated uh, earlier this year. Uh, you know, jobless claims, uh, we've had a few false starts where they've started to back up and it looked like maybe there was some deterioration in the labor market and then uh, kind of the numbers uh, came right back down and, uh, and whatnot. So, uh, you know, those kind of like... Uh, canary in the coal mine moments uh, proved to be uh, false uh, false flags uh, in the past. But if we look at the broader trend, we do see that it is slowing. So as as nominal GDP growth decelerates, as payroll gains decelerate, this does change uh, a lot of dynamics in the economy, including corporate profit trends, which as corporate profits uh, decelerate, that has an implication for uh, both capital spending plans and also uh, hiring plans. Uh, you still have a tightening of uh, financial conditions or of lending conditions from the banking sector uh, that we can see uh, showing up in the, the Fed surveys, uh, banking surveys, bank earnings, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are some problems that are, that are uh, becoming uh, pretty intense headwinds in an economy that's slowing already. Uh, but getting the timing right has, uh, has been problematic for forecasters more broadly. I don't think we're at the point where you're supposed to throw the recession call away uh, and it's uh, kind of immaculate uh, disinflation and a soft landing for the economy. I'm still skeptical that uh, we'll really be able to pull that off because monetary policy, as we know, is a very blunt instrument. Uh, and so kind of finessing the landing to, to have no contraction uh, is uh, something quite unprecedented. Uh, and so I would be surprised given the, the speed uh, with which the Fed tightened policy if we can, we can nail the landing given the uncertainty over lags and, and, and the net impact. So do you think, uh, Carl, just to sort of underscore what you're saying, do you think that right now bond markets have it wrong with a 4.2% yield on a 10-year? Do you think that people are getting over their skis in terms of how high rates can be and how long uh, the economy can be strong? Well, ultimately, those longer dated yields are going to be a function of real growth in the economy and inflation trends. Uh, so if you think that there's a kind of a persistently higher inflation trend over the longer run, uh, then you can make a case for 4% or higher on yields. Um, we do think that uh, you know, we will see some uh, pretty impressive uh, cooling of inflation pressures over the next several quarters. We think inflation will be back to target uh, by the end of next year. And I think that maybe part of that higher uh, inflation for longer 
uh, camp uh, may have to uh, revise some of those estimates as we see the economy decelerate, the labor softening, uh, and uh, a lot of these inflation categories moving in a favorable direction. Uh, the rent story alone is a big factor for the inflation profile. That's coming down. That That's a very big component of the C, uh, CPI or the, the inflation basket that's uh, decelerating. Uh, you have goods prices uh, showing further signs of uh, moderation. Uh, so the real question will be uh, the, the labor market dynamics. And if we yeah. do get some softening of labor conditions and wage pressures coming down, uh, then I think that might alleviate some of those inflation concerns, which then could factor into uh, where longer term yields are, are headed as well. So Just, I don't know that they're getting the story totally wrong, but maybe uh, assessing it as being a little bit too hot uh, at the moment. Just real quick, Carl, what's the one question that you want answered by Jay Powell next week at Jackson Hole? Uh, I'm very curious, uh, given the theme is structural changes in the global economic outlook, uh, you know, to watch uh, the degree to which this might be setting the stage for changing inflation targets or things of that nature. Now, uh, this is uh, the, the conference or the symposium is put on by the Kansas City Fed, which is notoriously hawkish. Uh, so this may be a way of kind of uh, chopping down the straw men uh, before they can uh, even get any firm anchoring. So rather than saying there are structural changes and we should change the inflation target, they can say, well, there are structural changes and but these are the reasons why we don't think we should be changing uh, longer-term estimates for growth, inflation, uh, or inflation targeting. Kara Kadana of VMP Paribas, thank you so much for being with us. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Dana Towsey joins us now, CEO and Chief Research Officer at Towsey Advisory Group. Dana, great to have you with us on the program. Target... I guess being a low bar because the stock is rallying really hard. Can you tell me just what's going on there? How low was that bar and how much clarity have you got and what's going on over there? We'll have more clarity after they do the earnings call at eight o'clock. But I think the real change is the fact that the inventory levels continue to remain very clean. When you take a look at the gross margin, it was better than expected. Shrink continues to be an issue out there, but it's all about essentials which is frankly much stronger than what you have with discretionary target. And it's a world of difference because you had TJX just report better than expected numbers talking about the strength in apparel and accessories. So if you have essentials, that's what's selling. 
but off price is where the action is for apparel. Dana, before we get into TJX and exactly what the retail trends are, I'd love your thoughts on what we're hearing more of, which is the social pushback and the consequence on sales. If you look at Target's earnings, they said that last quarter's uh, profits took a hit as a result of the controversy around Pride Month collections of items that they were selling. Dana, we also heard this from Anheuser-Busch. How much is this becoming a theme? How much is this a real potential threat for retailers that hadn't dealt with this kind of thing as much before? It is a threat, and we've seen it happen to multiple different categories of companies selling consumer goods. Certainly, I think the care and the concern about how you navigate this landscape is something that is new for all the retailers and I think is only going to continue to become more of a topic going forward. And I think you're going to see these consumer companies even more mindful and planning about what stance they take on particular issues. Going forward, when you talk about the off-price retailers really benefiting uh, at a time where people are being more discretionary, is that a negative sign for the luxury players or is it just there's plenty of money to go around? I think overall, the luxury players are in a world of their own. They have a high-end consumer who is has less, um, less acceptance to really being careful about their spend. But there's different magnitudes of certainly luxury and aspirational goods, depending upon the price point. The comparisons year over year are very challenging in luxury. And while many of them, even the European luxury goods companies, are lower year over year, when you compare it to 2019, they continue to be up, could be 50% or more. But I think every level of consumer spend overall, we've seen a moderation. And where we're seeing the allocation, it seems like one of the only places in discretionary, if it's any of the events like Taylor Swift or Barbie, that people are buying new costumes or new uh, new items to wear to those those events. Dana, just to touch on luxury a little bit more, different regions are performing better than others. In America, it's been disappointing. I'm thinking of Richemont and others too. Dana, recently China have allowed group tours to, I think, the UK and the United States. Some people believe that might make a difference. I want your opinion on that. Based on experience over the last year, does that move the dial? I think it's going to help. I think it's going to help. I think it's going to help show an increase. I think it's going to help to drive demand. I think you need more than just the tourist groups to truly move the needle, but it should help stem the rate of decline that we've seen from some of those luxury players in the Americas. A theme I've tried to work on over the last year, and I have to say I haven't had much clarity on it, Dana, but maybe you can help me. A year, two years ago, we would see a lot of people embracing buy now, pay later for entry-level luxury goods. What we've learned in the last month or so is that entry-level luxury at certain firms has been hit. Are the two things in any way, shape or form tied? Do those dots join up to you, Dana? Have we seen that buy now, pay later bubble burst for luxury? I think that it has burst certainly a bit for luxury. I think when you think about the headwinds of rising interest rates, you have student loans that are coming up in October. The average household has $6,200 of expenses, and you're going to get an increase of 3 to 8% on, of spend coming from student loans on top of that. There's less to go around. 
And so that's why there's the focus on essentials and a reduced focus on some of the aspirational items. Dana, just to build on what John was asking about, are you surprised that we haven't seen more of a hit to luxury retailers on the one-two punch of certain entry-level buyers stepping away and some issues with China, whether it's restrictions or whether it's the idea of uh, just the contraction that we're seeing in certain aspects of the economy, why that hasn't had more of an effect? I think some of the aspirational players that are out there, they've added a lot of newness and product innovation. There's extreme demand for newness and innovation, and it's really led to be able to have continued strength. But it's not a world of equals. It's definitely a world where essentially, what's the price you're charging? What can, what do you, there, there's some promotions on some of these items that people can get. And what are you seeing others wearing? What are you going to give up in order to buy that aspirational item? And I think it's definitely haves and have nots in terms of being choiceful in what spend is on. So what happens to all of the middle players, the middle tier that don't fall into bargain picking or luxury? Well, look what we've seen. We've seen it be very challenging out there. We've seen it for apparel retailers like the Gaps of the World. It was encouraging to hear American Eagle the other week talk about the pickup in July. We've seen retailers overall lower their inventory levels, but I think you're going to see these inventory levels continue to come clean because the lower freight costs being helped to the margins, the leaner inventory levels, there's more margin clarity. I think the cleanliness on inventory will be the key to managing through this because you have to keep your balance sheet sound. Dana, I have no idea how you listen to the call and conduct an interview at the same time, but you can. It's amazing. Dana, thank you. Dana Towsley there at Towsley Advisory Group. We appreciate it. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.